This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer, composer, author, and so much more, Doan Perry. Doan's career spans over 28 years with the internationally acclaimed progressive rock band Jethro Tull, incorporating many world tours, countless records, videos and DVDs, and a Grammy. As a performer, composer, and producer, he has appeared on more than 100 records to date, many of which have attained gold or multi-platinum status, and also on numerous number one records in multiple genres. And as an author, he has been a featured writer for musical magazines, anthologies, book publications, websites, liner notes, as well as Jethro Tull concert programs. A few of the artists that Doan has worked with in the past include people like Lou Reed, Bette Midler, Todd Rundgren, Pat Benatar, Peter Cetera, Dweezil Zappa, Stan Getz, Dionne Warwick, and many more. To find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done on Working Drummer Podcast, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, as well as iTunes, where you can rate and review this podcast. This helps us grow. This helps us reach new listeners and put on a better podcast for you. So find us on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. We're also on Stitcher and Spotify. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I have been doing here for over six years, you can find us on patreon.com slash working drummer for as little as a dollar per month. You have access to the educational material that we provide on our Patreon page provided by former guests. If Patreon isn't your thing, we have a PayPal button on our website, workingdrummer.net. You can go there and donate. We appreciate all the support over the years that we've gotten from you, our listeners, and we are excited about what 2021 is bringing to the table, and we hope you are too. Hey everyone, I want to make a quick announcement about a uh, drummer in our community, Keith Dudek. He's a drummer here in Nashville, but he's been in the hospital for a little over a month, fallen victim to COVID, and it's been a tough road with some very scary moments. Our friend Lee Kelly and former guest uh, has been keeping us up to date. There's a GoFundMe page to help cover Keith's extensive medical expenses that we know that is going to burden him uh, when he gets over this. But it's been a tough road, and we are praying for him, thinking about him. And if you're in a position to help even just a few dollars here or there, I'm including a link to Keith's GoFundMe page. Uh, So I just want to make a quick announcement about that. This episode is sponsored by Sonatus USA. Get it right at the source is the most common advice we hear when recording drums. Tuning and mic placement are a great place to start, but what shouldn't be overlooked is the space where you're playing. The time and energy it takes to work up and record a great performance shouldn't be wasted in a sonically bad environment. Investing in a proper blend of absorption, diffusion, and bass traps will improve the quality of your recordings just as much as the investment you make in your playing, instruments, and recording equipment. Whether you're tracking, rehearsing, mixing, or just practicing, having a great sounding room is essential. Sonatus USA provides the products and consultation to get your drums sounding the best they can in whatever space you're working with. 
Check them out at sonitususa.com. That's S-O-N-I-T-U-S-U-S-A dot com. And you can also check out my interviews with Anthony Gramani from Sonatus on episodes 306, 308, and 313. We also have videos of all three of those interviews on our YouTube channel. So here is part two of my conversation with Doan. I feel like the biggest takeaway for me after this conversation was complete was how excited Doan continues to be about living a creative life. And you see this arc of his career uh, in New York and playing with people like Bette Midler at, at a young age and then finding Jethro Tall and then moving to Los Angeles and having all these other experiences that we talked about in part one. But now we continue to talk a little bit more about Jethro Tall and some of the creative experiences uh, in the studio. And then we get into his world of composition and creating and this workflow and world that he's created. And it's very inspiring. And I hope you enjoy the rest of this conversation in part two with Doan Perry. You know, I worked on both coasts, you know, for many years. I go back and forth. And then I was working, you know, with an English band and, and with an Australian band. And I had a place down there. And all these different kind of uh, things that, that were sometimes it would be a certain thing that people would want from you. And occasionally uh, there would be that when uh, there would be a perfect storm of something where, you know, like in Jethro Tull, where it would be like, you can bring all of that. And, and use all of that if you use it judiciously. You can, but a lot of times people just, you know, they were kind of looking for a certain thing. So it's good to know. Uh, for me, it wasn't a chore to learn other styles. Some people feel they have to do. I just actually love all these different kinds of uh, these different kinds of music. So it was very natural and easy for me to assimilate things, even if I wasn't the most authentic. Uh, on any of those styles, and I, I'll tell you, uh, this is something that illustrates. We were you were talking about, you know, your son and and learning and getting, you know, and as you as you get older, hopefully you're acquiring more tools. But when I was, I think I was about ten when I started with the drums. I started with piano at seven, and and when I was about eleven, my sister had this band. It was called the Clock. Or maybe it was the thirteenth hour. By that point, that was when the psychedelic names were coming. Anyway, and we were we got hired to play in New York at Hunter College with this day long festival that culminated with Booker T and the MGs and Otis Redding. And there was a bunch of other like big bands who were actually had records out, hit records. And and anyway, I remember um, uh, I was eleven. And I had to play um, this guy, Steve Tyndall, who was a great drummer. Uh, he was playing with a band called the Druids. And they were a Columbia band. Uh, uh, they were from Columbia University. Then there was other bands that had 
you know, actually had, you know, real records out. But Steve had this big kit. I wasn't allowed to bring my kit and there wasn't room to set it up. And so I remember there was there was a DJ named Cousin Brucie who was the big DJ in, in New York at the time and was what, the guy that kind of introduced the Beatles to to New York and to America when they first came here off the Ed Sullivan show. And, and he introduced me. I was, I, he said, now our first performer of the day is, you know, from St. Bernard School. And, and I was 11. And he introduced me and out I walked. And, and I remember all these girls screamed. I thought – this is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> but I went back and I went back to Steve's drums and I thought, yeah. And I, and I thought, I know I've been playing a whole year. I know everything there is to know. <laughs> right. so I went back there just completely confident and full of myself. And you couldn't tell me anything. And I was like, I think, I don't know how I play, but I thought I played great. Even though I was playing this, it looked like this, like I was playing a giant's drum set because everything was set up so high and it was big. And, and I just had this this crummy little Sears and Roebuck drum sets. And he had like real Ludwigs and Zildjian's. And anyway, so, you know, I'm still thinking through the whole day and I'm watching all these other drummers and from bands, you know, with these records that I'd heard on the radio. And I'm going, I know more than that guy. Anyway, then um, Booker T and the MGs come out and they were also Otis's backup band. And they did a set before Otis came out and the great Al Jackson was the drummer. Wow. And, and I remember it was at that moment I was watching him and I thought, I don't know anything. I <laughs> And, and I remember I went very respectfully up to him afterwards, and I said, "Mr. Jackson, I've, I've never heard a." He had this. He had a um, a sonar kit with this piccolo snare, and it was a you know some sparkly color, just a four piece and two maybe three cymbals. And his snare drum sounded like nothing. I certainly didn't sound like my Sears and Roebuck snare drum. And um, and I asked him how he tuned it, and he showed me about how he tuned the bottom head and the top head and, you know, playing rim shots. And he was such a gentleman, and it was such an incredible experience to 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 get schooled that early to, like, I watched a master at work. And that's when I realized at 11, I went, I have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of work to do now. And that was uh, – you know, that was the end of my feeling totally confident about about going out there. And I mean, you have to feel confident, but, but, you know, that was, um, it, it, it pointed me, uh, in the direction of, of learning of, a, I'm still an eternal student of music and I don't feel any different in that way than I really was at, you know, 11. Maybe I know some more stuff, but I feel like, you know, I'll, I'll never, I'll never learn it all. It's well, not that's, possible. it's so interesting that you say that because I, it's so funny, like my mother-in-law will come over and I'll be working on some music for for a gig coming up. And she's like, don't you know it by now? You've been playing for, you know, <laughs> 30 years or so. I'm like, I'm, I'm always trying to learn. And people, you know, I've got friends who are like, oh, I never practice or I never do this. And, and you know, they're, they're busy players. They're great. They're professional. You right. know, they didn't just give up, but they're just, they're just, so my mindset is like, I feel like I've Either I'm always trying to play catch up, I'm always trying to like maintain, uh, you know, and learn. And and I'm like, is this ever going to go away? But do I want it to go away? I don't. I want to be a student always. And I'm curious to know, like, what. So uh, it's it's kind of a two part kind of question. It's like, what do you 
what do you do if you have time to practice? Do you do anything besides, because you're probably always creating, uh, is that part of your practice or your growth? And what do you do to take care of yourself physically at this stage of your life to be able to play at the level you want to? Well, that's a great question. Those are great questions because they address um, several things that I've come to feel strongly about. Um, to starting with, like, how do I practice? Um, I tend to these days reverse engineer myself into something. And, uh, you know, I will hear something. If I hear whether somebody do did something and I'm thinking, oh, I, I like the way that feels. Now, I might not have any idea of how they actually did it, but I will try to figure out a way that I can play it or orchestrate it so it falls comfortably under my own hands. Or it's something that, that you know, uh, you know, I'm in that, uh, you know, that uh, I think they call it the hypnagogic state right before you, you fall asleep and, you know, you, you're, you're not asleep, but you're, you're, um, uh, you, you actually, sometimes it's like, uh, you, you hear, I, I will often hear music in, in those coming, going into sleep or coming out of sleep. But I will then I will try to remember those things, and I used to think, I, oh, if it's good, I'll remember it the next day. But mm -hmm. very often, I'll, I'll either I have a notepad next to the bed. I'll either write it down or I'll sing it into my iPhone, and so I will then listen to that, and and I will use that. Okay, I I need to invent a technique to to play this because not to say I mean there's there are so many young incredible players that I could spend the rest of my life just studying you know, those players and, and technical things. But I'm driven much more by what I hear now in my head, what I think that I can utilize. And that's not just drumming. Sometimes that's, you know, whether it's a, I don't know, whether it's a, you know, a chord progression or a melody that I want to find a chord progression for. Sometimes the drums are the very, and percussion are the very last thing I think about it. Because I know, well, that's, I'll be able to work that out fairly easily. Right. Um, but I, I tend to, uh, try to let the music guide me and not uh, 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 one thing that that I think is is uh, is important is to make a uh, a delineation in your own head about what it is you want to practice to get to uh, have a higher level of technical excellence versus what is something that is really going to be a, uh, and it might be more of a technical exercise versus something that you really could use in a very musical setting. And I, and I think there's always a, a danger that when you're, when you're young and you're learning stuff and you want to play everything you know in the first 24 bars, which is usually completely inappropriate. And, um, uh, and that is, and, and learning how to uh, get away from the, the idea that I've learned all this stuff, this technical stuff. I can do it, so I should do it. That's not a really a very good reason to do it. the The best reason to do it is because if you're, unless you're doing it in a drum solo or something, if you're working with other musicians, it, it, this has got to you. You're the guy. You are the chief cook and bottle washer, and you have got to make everything feel great. And sometimes that's just with like you know a whole note on the bass drum, you know, and you know gentle eights on the hi hat or or you know and a and a simple two and four. It can or it can be you know as complex as you like. And and there there were times like to go back to like. Uh, 
something that I didn't, I didn't practice it for that because when we did, there's a song again, I think it's on roots to branches, dangerous veils, dangerous veils. And Ian played it to me. And literally within like 10 seconds, I had that whole kind of offbeat drum part. It like, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. It just, it completely came out like that. And, and I would have never just played something like that to a song. It's just like, because of where the phrases went, I, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, uh, it might be hard to hear. And some of the live versions, you can hear some of the, the, uh, the, the, the way I orchestrated it around the kit a little better, but, but it, it was one of those things where I thought if I had tried to take that, cause a lot of people asked me about that beat. And I said, that came to me literally in like 10 seconds when he played it to me, I thought this is, this is what needs to go there. practice with a, with uh, a goal in mind that I, I want to practice this part either for a uh, somebody's record that I'm going to do something where I need to this needs to be really fluid I need to, to be relaxed so I can just I still kind of think in terms of whole takes because I came from that word world of having to do an entire take because right. you could because symbols were ringing nowadays you can do that so sometimes I will make comp takes if I if I play something and I, and I and I go well I've got actually a better take of that section I can put it in now and I you couldn't you didn't used to be able to do that but in that way I try to um, I, I, I try to sit down to play something so it will be fluid and then I have to work out what is the technique involved? I used to practice. I mean, I went through all the rudiments and all the books and certainly had some fantastic, you know, technical training from my classical guys that I studied with who were, you know, you know, in, in, in orchestras and, and the studios and Billy Cobb or Barry Altschul or, uh, uh, Norm Grossman. There's a lot, a lot of different people that um I, I learned different things from but that was a period i don't really feel like i need to go back i did that already and i feel like that it's not important any longer for me and, you know i i never thought about well you know what is the world's best drummer i thought well i'm not going to be the world's best drummer whatever definition that is mm-hmm. i just i could just be the best that I could be playing the music that I played, which I think probably was the reason I worked all the time was because songwriters like working with me and, and I was, I was very song oriented and I could, I could, you know, I could be in the background if I needed to be, or, and I could really step forward when I needed to be. But, um, I wasn't, um, you know, there's always people I've heard. I thought, Oh, they've got, you know, lots more chops than I do, but I had, um, um, 
I had a very interesting um, uh, a conversation with it. And in fact, he lives in Nashville. Charlie Morgan. Do you know Charlie Morgan? Oh, uh, uh, who was Elton? From Elton John. For- yeah, yeah. You know what? I I met him briefly once, but we haven't had him as a guest yet. He is one of my favorite drummers. We talked the other day, and he's on these these Nick Kershaw albums. That's where I first heard him. And, and you know, we were talking about Chops, and we had played, I don't know, we had played opposite each other at uh, at the Frankfurt Music Mess for Peisty or something. And and he said, oh, you know, I don't, I don't have these kind of chops. I said, Charlie, you have great chops. And he said, you think so? And I said, yeah. I said, you know, and you know what? And it was at that moment where I realized, you know, Great chops is is simply the articulation of your own ideas clearly. Mm, yeah. That's all it is. And that's and, and to me, like Charlie Morgan has one of the most beautiful feels. He executes his ideas so well. And and I think you could say the same thing about Ringo. You know, Ringo had just this beautiful, natural feel. I mean, there's you know, and then there's like, you know, you wouldn't put Buddy Rich in the Beatles and expect that to sound, you know, and <laughs> Good, pretty. I mean, it would, or, or vice versa. But they were playing for the groups that they were in, and their styles developed out of that. And so, if you, uh, if you really, if you think of it from the ins, I guess I think of it from the inside out. And I'm, I'm, I, I have enough technique that I could get my ideas out. And if I, and if I felt like I was hearing something and I was not clearly articulating it. I would go and practice that and I would practice it until it was completely second nature. And so my technique was really kind of built upon what am I hearing in my head? How do I want to orchestrate that? And much less from trying to cop a lick from this guy or that guy. I, mean, I certainly did that and utilized those things and probably played them differently because I wouldn't have been able to play them like, you know, you know, Tony Williams or Billy Cobb or any of those people. I couldn't, you know, but I had, um, I, I had the ability to try to 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 step inside the music, and that really is probably, in terms of technique, I still feel the same way. And I think of it very much that way in 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 composing. I think any musician who plays another instrument, and particularly drummers, if they you know are play some keyboards or guitar or something that uh, that gives them a, a different framework they will start to think about drums differently and they might end up developing different techniques for that when they think about how and I also would always sing to myself I always wanted to know what are the melodies what are the vocal melodies what are the lyrics and and then I would frame myself around that or work my my parts in between so it 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 framed those in a way that that made musical sense to me and i guess that's uh, for me served me better than just strictly a technical approach i mean there's times where you know uh, sometimes i'm on my stationary bike and i actually have like a little practice pad up there on the desk part and i can i can <laughs> I can, as I'm cycling through the Pyrenees and the Alps and the Italian countryside, I can be kind of practicing something, getting my hands feeling good, you know, with something that I might want to work on. So it's 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 trying to, you know, I like to try to keep my hands in good shape. But what's much more important is that I conceptually connect with what I want to do. And that's not only 
in my own compositions, but in other people's too. So I think it's driven by that and less by the the pursuit of technique as a thing, as a means to an end. Well, and, and if I could just, just unpack a couple of things there, I mean, there's so much online right now and there's so much... Uh, a, a, a couple of us are all on the same page where we see these drum acrobatics and it's, it's some of it is, is amazing and it's fun and it's entertaining, but it's not always helpful. It's not always useful uh, for it, for someone that is interested in working in the industry as a, uh, a as a drummer, a session player, a sideman, a band member. Uh, working right. with other musicians, um, I, there are other avenues to create, uh, carve out a niche for yourself as a drummer, uh, you know, by themselves or, you know, doing things online, like the industry has changed. So I don't want to take anything away from that. But just the fact that just the, the very thing that you said, just uh, um, chops, you know, being being this, having the ability to articulate your own ideas and execute your own ideas really well is, is that's so great. I love it because there's so much information that we're bombarded with uh, more so nowadays than there was even 10, 15, 20 years ago that now it's overwhelming. And I can, I can see how it could be daunting for a young player to think I, I can't play like this person. I can't play like that person. It's like, what's the best you, you can be. That's exactly Mm-hmm. And that, that's it in a nutshell is that is that uh, is that you uh, your technique, you know, is just is the defining of your ideas clearly and not being like a bad version of some, you know, incredible chops player. And you're sort of getting there halfway. That doesn't really, you know, nobody's going to be hiring you for, for you know, that sort of thing. And yeah, you look at a guy like Steve Gadd. Why did that guy work all the time? He had amazing chops without question, mm-hmm. but he always knew um, just how much to play or how little. And, and there was a, I, I just love this story about uh, one time Paul Simon brought him in a piece of music and was using Steve on just about everything. And he said, what do you, um, what do you hear on this? And Steve listened very thoughtfully and he goes, you know, I don't hear any drums at all. (laughs) I thought thought very mature uh, way to approach it because I'm sure he could have come up with some great, very cool thing that everybody would have gone, well, that's perfect. But, you know, and and Paul Simon said, yeah, you're right. And so he did it sort of as an acoustic thing. And I thought, well, that now that's a mature musician. That's knowing that's in a way using your chops in the right way he it's just that was like the the extreme of minimalism <laughs> yeah no doubt good use of space there steve that's right that's right well you and know. and i i was listening to jtoll.com today and uh there's there's some spots when it, it it occurred to me how when you were playing eighth notes on the hi-hat two and four on the snare drum and maybe a simple kick pattern you did not let that go. There was still an attention to detail that um, it still needed to be the best quality performance for this section of the song that was as simple as 
that groove that we all know and use on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You did not um, look down. It was not a lesser part of the song that didn't require as much attention and detail. And uh, I'm discovering that in my playing right now when I'm, I'm recording more than I ever have in my life. And, and because of the home studio, listening, taking the time to listen to my parts a lot more attentively than, than I was when I was in the studio when time is moving fast and they're like, yeah, we got it, we're moving on. And I'm like, I never get a chance to really hear my parts, but now I'm really dissecting just the space in between the eighth notes and the, the, uh, the dynamics between the right hand and the left hand and, and how all that is so, 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 so important. And I'm like, okay, put the triplet fill on hold and play this eighth note groove and i i heard that today on a couple tracks on that record well thank you i mean i think that's that that, if if i can uh play something that really transcends drum or drumistic stuff you know i i enjoy that at points but i i don't i never thought of myself as one of those players i mean i i know i i have a uh, an ability to uh, hopefully play my own parts clearly, but I can play simply and be very, very happy in that place. If that's just the thing that it really needs, especially if it's, uh, you know, a high contrast part where you're playing something quite active and busy. And then you come and you play this hypnotic rooted thing. And, and, and I know, you know, I mean, I, I, it goes back to my love of Ringo and just, you know, the, the, incredible simplicity he would approach certain things with but it could never have been played any other way and then he would play these beautiful unusual phrases in the fills and and his note placement and and that was you know i mean if you look at a steve gadd transcription there are hundreds of people that could read that but it's the way gadd played it it's where he placed those notes um that that really is um is what made the music come alive. And that's all we can do as drummers. And there's, there's no shortage of great examples recorded and, you know, live players who can do that. And, and that's what people respond to. And that's, that's the thing that transcends the, the, the technical part of music that, that I think you always got to get to. If you don't, if you're not connected to that, you're not going to work a lot and you're not going to be connected to much. And, and and, and maybe I told you this in a different discussion, but this, it kind of bears repeating. Um, When I taught at PIT many years ago, I would lead these live playing workshops and there was, um, and, and, and there was some incredible players really, really developed on all instruments. Uh, unfortunately, some of the drummers were real serial offenders of like overplaying. It's like, I just learned this new <laughs> whoever lick and I am going to play it for you. And I'm going to play it, you know, several times in the first 12 bars, just in case you miss it. <laughs> so we would play these. And so, and sometimes, you know, I would at the, you know, I would, uh, I'd have to stop the band and say, okay, you know, okay, it's totally wrong tempo or, or, you know, everybody needs to, uh, you know, sit back on this or whatever it was. There was a girl in this class. She was from Wales and she, every time she sat down and played the drum, she didn't have like a lot of chops, but she had 
she had great technique by virtue of the fact that she sat down and she played her ideas so well, so clearly, it sounded like a record. And it used to actually, frankly, piss some of the guys off because they were there and, you know, with like lots of testosterone and double bass stuff. And it's like a Madonna song or a Michael Jackson song that really did not need or want any of that. And and I would sometimes say if this was if Madonna was just auditioning a drummer or Michael Jackson, this girl, she would have gotten the gig. She would have gotten the gig. Uh, and they were like, what? But I can do all this other stuff. And I said, yeah. that is not going to get people are, you know, songwriters. They don't care about that. You know, they save it, it. It's the, you know, the thing we've all heard at some point, save it for your solo record, save it for your drum solo. <laughs> and, right. and I thinking she was another one that I thought, you know, that's what good technique is. You know, she, and, and I always felt that she was going to do well. And that was, um, she just had the right sense of note placement and giving the right tension to the music. And, uh, th that's something, you know, I don't know that some people just sort of are born with that, that kind of, I, I'm not saying you can't learn it. You can you definitely can learn everything, but there's some people that have more of that natural ability to sit down and play a bass guitar or sing or play the drums or whatever than other people where it might be, you know, you're working very hard to get to that point where it has that kind of relaxed flow. Everybody has a different method, but... Uh, I think sometimes we're so close to the drums. We're so close to listening and, and reading about our favorite drummers or listening to our favorite drummers uh, that we get too far away from the music. We get too far away from other things that keep our interests alive and our creativity, that creative bone uh, active. And and then it, it just becomes, it just doesn't become interesting uh, I mean, I struggle with that. I, a good friend of mine, you know, we doesn't play drums very much anymore, but he'll come over and sit down and play, you know, two or three times a year. It's the only time he ever plays. And sometimes, and I'll listen to him, he'll come over and play on my kit and I'll listen to him. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's such a great idea. And he's only, he only plays like three times a year. And how, how did he come up with that? And I didn't come up with that. And I'm playing four or five times a week. Well, you know, there are those people that just say, that's right, they they sit down, and it's not a technical thing, it's just, they just have that, there's something in them that where they can connect all those dots and connect all the yeah, limbs, Yeah, and it feels right, and that's hard to explain, that's sort of one of the things that's hard to quantify in music, but when you see that and you know it, then that's a good thing to be inspired by so that you can look at that and go, well, there's, there's something that he is connecting with that clearly is informing right, the, right. The, the way he plays and the choices he makes. that I was very, very lucky about 
was I got to work with just some amazing songwriters in my life. And, and uh, a lot of them, a lot of different kinds from, you know, pop and rock to jazz and crossover and uh, just all kinds of stuff. And, and I learned, I, I was a sponge. I just, you know, whether sometimes I wouldn't say anything, I would just listen, you know, I'd be on a date and I'm going, just, you know, just do your gig here, play the music correctly, but I'm listening. And I, I also was leaning over the engineers, you know, shoulders, say, how did you do that? Or what mics I used to keep a, a book of like every session that I did and the microphones that, that I would find that would come up time and again. And I'd ask, you know, engineers about the signal path and how they were getting certain things. So I just felt like I was just a sponge and particularly with songwriting because I saw, you know, when songwriters would come in and they'd give us a song and sometimes it would just be, again, a very skeletal thing with, with just, you know, chords, uh, a melody, a basic lyric, but I could see the way, uh, some of the 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 architecture of of the music, and that was what I tried to absorb. And I guess after doing that for so many years and getting to work with so many phenomenal songwriters, I began to uh, assimilate all kinds of things. Not really all that conscious. Some occasionally there'd be things where I go, "Oh, I, I know where I got that idea from," but um, it would maybe just come out in the way uh, I was. I was hearing things. I really try to let that always be the governor is how I'm hearing it. But then occasionally you're writing and the more um, I, I feel that composing has made me a much better drummer. Now I've always played keyboards, but you know um, you know, I play some, you know, tune percussion on stage with, with the band and with other people and, you know, occasionally second keyboard or something. But, but that wasn't really like, uh, you know, my, my job description most of the time live and in the studio was as a drummer and a percussion. Sometimes uh, orchestrally I would do it orchestral dates and I learned how to do that and, you know, play timpanis and mallets and all that stuff. But um, that I feel like I'm sitting here in my studio and I, I think of it as a laboratory <laughs> and I come in here and I just love it in here. I mean, I've got, I mean, I, I could work in here literally till I like drop over dead and it, I would never get to the end of all the things I want to do. Cause I have a lot of, you know, certain things you start and you go, that was really that there was a good part of that. I'll save that. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. And, you know, you might get to a point where you get kind of blocked and then you come back to it. The same thing happens when I write prose. It's very similar. And, and I will write and write and write and write and write. And I've learned with it's it's usually with more on the compositional end, whether it's prose writing or music composition, and sometimes when you're going for uh, a take, you know what this feels like when you know the the maybe the producer says that's good enough, and maybe you did two takes, and and maybe you insist go let's do one more, and you know that and and, and, and there was a point where I realized that producers started trusting me when they would say. What did you think about? You think that's good, and I, and I would say I think that's great. Or let's do another one, or another one or two, because I knew I had something more in me, and at least I get it out. And then when you get past the you know uh, diminishing returns, then you you need to stop. It's the same with with writing. But when I write, I try to I, I really try to just imagine what is music 
that pleases me. You know, if I wrote music from the point of view of thinking, well, I could slot it into this style of that, you know, even given the different people and history people I've worked with, if I went about it that way, I would it would be completely wrong. So I always think if I am convinced by it, and this goes the same for recording a part, writing a part, um, orchestrating, if I if I feel convinced about it, not, not everybody will be convinced about it. Not everybody will like it, but there will be some people that that will, and and that's and I think that's the best that I can hope for because there's no point in trying to please everyone if you don't please yourself to start with. Yeah. When I do that, then I feel like okay, now at least I can say that's as good as I can get. The times where I have made a, a real concession and I knew at the time that's not a concession I want. Those are things that didn't live very well with me. And so I try to always feel that even though I want to hear other people's opinion, ultimately you're the arbiter of the, the decisions regarding, you know, whether it's uh, hopefully when you're you're playing and recording with people or you're writing music and you go, this is, this is what I want to say. Now, some people may not get it. Some people may not like it, but that doesn't matter. It really doesn't. If you do, then there will be others that will connect. And that's the bottom line for me at this point. So whether I'm writing things that are, you know, I've written a bunch of things that are ostinato-based, sort of, you know, influenced by some very modern 20th century classical stuff, and other things that are, you know, jazzier and and other things. There was, there was a piece I wrote a, many, many years ago, which had its origins. Um, I want to think about it. Okay, it had its it had its origins in um, – I did a tour with this amazing Japanese artist named Kitaro. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, it was like a cross between playing in the New York Philharmonic and Pink Floyd. And it was it, – this, this guy, people wrongly think, oh, he's just a new age composer. This guy is deep and there's so much more that, that – um, that, that he has in his music that, that a lot of people realize. And we were playing at the Berkeley Greek one night, uh, the, Berkeley, California, that is. And, um, and Mickey Hart from the Grateful Dead had produced one of Kotaro's albums. And he came down to the gig and he brought this big, um, I called it a mythified Udu drum. It looked like a great big horseshoe with these big conch shells or something. But he had MIDI triggers on them. And, uh, Mickey and Kitaro and I did a completely improvised solo for 20 minutes. We had no idea what we were going to do. And Kitaro was playing taiko drums. And this is where I, because I really got into taiko and learned how to play them. I played the drum kit. Kitaro played the big taikos. And Mickey played this udu drum. And and it was electrifying. And it was that we had no idea yeah, it was the best thing I think about that that whole concert. Anyway, that that served as a springboard for me. This kind of I wanted to get this kind of organic thing uh, that was that it that was reminded me it wouldn't be like that performance. So I did an album with Ian called Divinity's Twelve Dances with God, which was a like a classical album that that. Uh, it was a, it was wonderful. It actually ended up being like a number one classical album. And I played timpani and uh, tuned percussion and untuned percussion on that. That no drum set on that. And um, 
it, and when we went out to do the tour, we had a lot of other musicians play, but then we had to kind of bring it down to, you know, he had a, I, I was from the band and, um, I can't remember if Andy Giddings had joined the band yet, or maybe if he was in the band at that point, he played keyboard. We had a couple other people anyway. So Ian wanted me to do a solo. And I said, you know, I, I've done drum solos every tour. I just don't want to. And I had a little drum set there, but mostly I had my keyboards. I had my mallets. I had all these trigger pads that I had, like, you know, I sampled all my, my timpani stuff from there. So it was, it took a hell of a long time and a lot of programming and I had drum cats and all that. And then all this, I, you know, just like a lot of acoustic stuff. It was a, it was a crazy rig. And I said, I let me write something that would be, something that would be more um that would be more uh, um compositional yeah yeah that would it's not going to be a drum solo thing <laughs> this is sort of a classical orchestral concert so i put together this thing that was that was in that was inspired by the thing i did with mickey hart and kitaro and what i did was and this was in the early days of of uh you know, MIDI was around, but, but, you know, polyphony was not good and, and, you know, and, uh, nobody was taking computers on the road. This is like 1991 or 92 or something like that. And, and so nowadays, I mean, it'd be very easy to achieve what took, what was just a nightmare of, of programming to get everything so it didn't lock up and the polyphony didn't run out. But what I did was I, I, I came up with this kind of, it, uh, I always loved Balinese music, and uh, and I wanted something to sound like a gamelan mixed with a marimba, and 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 so I, I had and I had all these pedals on the on the floor that I'd play with my feet, and I was playing. A lot of people actually thought I was playing to a tape, but I did it all live and in real time when the equipment was uh, was working properly, and Cat had rewrite the, the their software about five times for me before it stopped locking up but it finally it worked and what it what I did was I, I wanted it to sound like I would play these kind of these marimba parts that were kind of marimba and and Balinese gong kind of gamelan things and then I had like I had a uh, on my right foot, I would play a percussion thing, but every time I play a quarter note, it would play a series of notes. So it would it would have a rhythm, you know, where even if I'm just playing down, because because I had to like with my left foot, I had I was standing up and playing, so I had to switch with my left foot while I'm playing with my right foot in both my hands, and I had and then I could move through all these key signatures because I had a pad that like I had these melodies that I could I could. First, I would move through all these various keys. So I played this on my own. And when it, the nice it went well, it was really exciting. It was really hard because, again, the technology was just, it was just kind of struggling to keep up. And I remember staying up till, you know, six and seven in the morning at Ian's studio, just trying to program everything. So, mm. so it would work. And, and anyway, after the tour, I thought, I like that piece. So I took that piece. And I'm getting to a point here. You're probably going, where the hell is he going with it? <laughs> <laughs> so 
at the end of the after that tour, I, I I sort of thought about that, and I thought I want to write something. And it was really in the early days when I had moved my studio in here and began, you know, tracking with you know my real drums and you know my keyboards and stuff. But um, now I've actually thought about redoing it and and rewriting parts of it. But I played, I had four drum sets. I played four drum parts. But I played them like taikos. Like there's a just a way Kataro taught me about how you approach playing taiko parts. And I orchestrated starting with the highest ones. Then I had a middle drum set. Then I had a sort of mid-low drum set. Then I had a low drum set. And I panned them all left to right. Now that's the that was this the beginning of this thing. But it started out with this very kind of tribalesque. You know, it, somewhere between Japanese and African. Now, me, mind you, I'm not really thinking about the influences, but it, and then it goes into there's a, a tabla part that it segues into. And then there's, I put the, the marimba parts and the gamelan stuff on top and the string parts and the bass line. And, 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 uh, and it goes through a lot of different time signatures and, and styles. And I realized later, that I didn't think of, and I'm glad I didn't think about this. It was just kind of what seemed right at the time. I went, I like this kind of music. I'm going to do it something here. And I did it actually originally for, it was when the hurricane Katrina happened and they, and they wanted a track for that. That was, uh, I, I did it for, it was for the Congo square project. I think, and they wanted, they wanted a track. And so I played all the, so I did it here and, engineered it and it was a lot of work to try to get that stuff sounding the way I wanted. Now it would be a lot easier. Hmm. But I look back and I thought that's like all my influences in almost in in a single piece of music, starting with like the Japanese taiko and the way you sort of orchestrate a part, going into sort of Indian, going into Gamelan, Balinese music, going into a Latin and then African and then kind of Western jazz and classical uh, some of the harmonic movement, as I said, kind of influenced by Bernard Herrmann, who I, I loved a lot. And, and it went through all these kind of movements and or whatever it was, five minutes. And, and I look back on, it, I thought if I had written on a piece of paper, okay, let's blend all that together. I would have thought that's a nightmare. That's going to be a complete musical train wreck. Don't do that. And, and, but the thing is that I didn't really think about any of that until I finished it and I realized it represented all the interests that I have in across all these different kinds of music and it all came out very organically because I was the thread of continuity I mean I played everything but I wasn't trying to deliberately insert this style here and it just was and that's the way it came out so for me that was a a good object lesson on writing like write first and then analyze it later and then you can tweak it or, you know, whatever. That was a, uh, uh, and I try to use that as an edict that I, I stick to when I'm composing.
starting with a certain instrument when you're composing now? Are you are, are you thinking top down? Are you thinking melody? Or are you thinking? Uh, I know that uh, you know. Oftentimes, Peter Gabriel, when he would write, he would start with the groove, or he would start with like you know. Of course, and his groove involved a lot of what you're talking about. You know, ethnic percussion and all these different world styles and influences. And, yeah. You know, and as drummers, a lot of us are drawn towards what he does, and then of course, oh, yeah, he puts his beautiful melodies and and arrangements on top of it with these insane musicians. It's just the perfect storm uh for sure but i'm just curious to know and 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 is there anything currently you've been working on Mm -hmm. yes um well to answer your question sometimes the the drums or percussion or even the rhythmic bed are sometimes they're the last thing occasionally i'll hit on a groove and i'll go oh i can build something Mm -hmm. and uh marco miniman gave me a great tip he's a he's an old friend of mine and he told me about a, a, a very cool thing that he did. And I thought, this is an interesting thing to try. He said he would play like a record, like a drum solo kind of thing. And then he would write something on top of that to go with that, you know? And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Cause most people would, would start with sort of the melody or the, or, or pr- progression or something. And then the, the drums would slide in under that. And I thought that was a very, it was a, it was. I thought that's an interesting way to to go outside of your comfort zone because you're not just playing the same rhythmic figures and motifs. You're playing suddenly. You're you're playing along with maybe something that you're quite comfortable with playing as a soloist, but you would never conceive of as a keyboard player. Right. And so I love that, that that was a that was a great that was a great little uh, tip that that. Um, I thought I, I've done that a, sometimes where I thought just to get myself out of a comfort zone. But a lot of times it comes from, you know, I will sit at the keyboards and it's not it's not necessarily uh, the instrument um, sensitive in the sense of it being, you know, a, just a piano or, a, you know, a string part or so. sometimes it's a very unusual sounding sound that I find and, and the sound itself triggers a whole series of 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 um pieces that 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 sh- that could go with that but it wouldn't be something that you would play necessarily as a keyboard player other times i've got this three octave marimba up here and it's midi and it comes into and and i can play all kinds of things the marimba or or the this three octave thing really is the bridge instrument to me between keyboards and drums now Keyboards is thought of as in the percussion family, but I can use all my drumistic technique on my marimba, but I'm playing the things that are, you know, more, that are easier to play, uh, whether they're lines, uh, because I'm using mallets, sometimes two or sometimes four mallets, but uh, I can play it faster sometimes than I could if I was trying to play those just on the keyboard. And then the keyboard serves a different function. And so depending on the sound that I have, that very often is the determining factor in terms of if I come across something, then I I wrote something recently that didn't have any drums or percussion at all. Um, but it was just, it it was something that, um, uh, it it probably, it makes me think more of, I I love composers like uh, Ray Fawn Williams and people like that in Ravel and Debussy who have a, had a way of just evoking, um, 
scenery, literally to me, scenery. And, and, and this kind of came out of that. And it just was, it was just, um, uh, a double bass, cello, violin, and then, then more full string comes in. And then it has, uh, clarinet playing some of the lines and French horn and a couple other instruments, but no percussion. And, and it doesn't really sound, there is a pulse under it, but I, but I don't really allude to the pulse because I've sort of started with a polyrhythmic thing. And so you're not really sure, you know, uh, necessarily, it doesn't really matter where the, where the, the real pulses, but it comes, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is there's no one way I come about these things. Sometimes I completely stumble upon them with the sound. And then I'll go down that rabbit hole of that sound might take me somewhere. And then I could combine it with this and um, that's the problem with having your own studios because then I have to learn to 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 walk away. But what I I did want to say about um, like when you're doing takes and 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 you're writing is that it's really important. I learned the hard way when I first really started writing. Um, I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I can come back to that, and I might have the genesis of the idea there, but I didn't. I would come back a few hours later or the next day and I could kind of get back to where I was, but I wasn't in the same place. And so I just was not able to, to capture. And I knew, Oh, it's like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta go work or something. I've got to. So I, yeah, I'd, I'd have to leave that. And then I'd think, Oh, that's a good idea. And sometimes you come back and you have a better idea, but there's times where I thought, I always try to follow it to its absolute logical conclusion, even if I'm really tired. And 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 that would come the same with like uh, like doing takes on drums or writing um, music and trying to find where it's going to take you right then, or uh, you know, or orchestration or, or or prose writing. It's all the same in terms of. When I'm in that groove, I try to stay there and I just put a do not disturb sign on my door and don't bother me. And <laughs> I will, I try to follow that to its natural conclusion. Sometimes you need to take a break and there's times now where I go, don't take a break now. I don't care. You know, uh, you know, if I feel like I should have dinner. I'm going to finish this and get this to a point where I feel like I, I really can get back exactly where i was so uh, that was an object lesson to me in in um maintaining a thread of continuity throughout what i was doing and i think that you can kind of apply that to sort of almost anything you do have there been opportunities through people knowing that you compose or exposing this to uh, listeners or other people in the industry that have opened up opportunities for you to compose to uh, for people to, mm -hmm. to, to hire you or to, for whatever. Yeah. I, well, yes, I, I have, there's a one big piece I've been working on with a, I have a writing partner, Vince DiCola. We have done a lot of sort of progressive rock stuff together. He's a great keyboard player and composer and we've done over oh, almost close to 40 years. We have worked on a lot of records together. We've written a lot together. We've finished this big piece and it's about, a, it's 57 minutes long. Mm. And it's really, it's probably my best playing and my best writing on record. I've got, we've got the bones of that all done. And that is, uh, there's going to be a whole, I don't want to say too much about it because it's really a huge undertaking. There's going to be a whole immersive part of this, that more of an interactive part, but then there's a lot of great 
guest artists that are going to put their pieces on there. And that I really enjoy working in that long form. And it won't be for everybody. Some people are going to go 57 minutes. I don't have 57 minutes. If you give me a 30-second cat video on YouTube, I'll watch that. But I don't care. You know, I really don't care. And I'm lucky enough that I can kind of do what I want to do uh, these days. And, um, and I have another piece behind that, that I've been asked to a couple times to do some, some movie score work, but I'm not going to take any of that on until I finish some of these, because the thing about movie score work, and these are independent films, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know, John, I'm, I'm no threat to John Williams. Well, nobody's a threat to John Williams, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, uh, but, um, it would be, it's something that I probably could bring something to, but you have to be really prepared to kind of chop up a lot of stuff and just be, just let go of this and that. You know, I got so many great projects right now. I'm in the middle and, and, and several others. I, you know, um, I, I feel like I, I feel incredibly, uh, blessed with the surfeit of, of, uh, projects and things. They will be, they won't be for everybody. Some people really dig them. I think this big piece that, um, been working on this is called figurehead that's that's uh i i hope that we'll well where are we now we're in april i i would like to think that we'll have everybody's parts on by the end of the year and and a working model of the more immersive part um uh you know after that but it's going to take as long as and it's taken quite a while to do this because vince and i it started out as a really modest short little piece of music and then then it would be just like we'd add on another piece and another piece. And then suddenly it went from like a modest, I don't know what it was, five minutes. It's now 57 minutes. And it wasn't designed to be that way. But it's it's told, it's a story, it's a good story. And it has a, um, and the vocalist we have on there is uh, Steve Hackett's vocalist, Ned Sylvan, who's just done an amazing job with the vocals and um, things that we couldn't have imagined. And, um, and now other people start contributing, but I also have, yeah, I also have some, some, um, other big pieces in mind, more things that I, I don't know if people would want to use excerpts of these. I don't mind, you know, if they, if people want to use that for an excerpt for something, there's, um, uh, for, you know, film or, or, you know, records, that's fine. But I haven't, I'm, I've, I've always been like kind of a amateur astronomer. I've always been into astronomy. So I've, I have an idea based on the position of, 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 you know, the, of the celestial objects and the, the, the literal position, but boiling them down into rather than light years into notes. I, it's hard to explain, but I've kind of worked it out and it's either going to be like a total failure or it'll be wonderful. I don't know. Well, there's some, uh, but, there's some history in there as, as far as classical composition and, you know, people thinking of, of the, the, you know, planets and, and, and just how and, music relates to all that stuff. And mathematics. Yeah and, yeah. and absolutely. And, you know, all of that stuff, I've just always been plugged into some of these more offbeat parts of, of things that interest me as just as a person, but I've been able to bring them into music and whether people realize that's, where it comes from is not so important. I mean, it, it, to me, I'm trying to see if I can do it because I think I can. I have the concept of how to do it. It's going to be hard. That's going to be hard because 
there's a lot of technical things involved, but then I have to apply musical law to to it to also make it work you know mm-hmm. otherwise it's just going to sound like you know you know a, a random you know piece of you know uh, you know stockhausen on a very very bad day and i don't want it to sound like that <laughs> <laughs> well is this a 57 minute piece of music going to be available absolutely i i this is this is a real you know uh, a passion project for vince and i and the people that have heard it Mm-hmm. Uh, are um, uh, are incredibly supportive, and we have a, a great cast of people who are going to put on their guest appearances. And as I said, we had uh, Steve Hackett's vocalist, Nad Silvin, has he's it's just been he's done all the vocals uh, so far, and uh, then Vince and I have our parts on there, and then we've got all these other parts. But I'm also working on the immersive part. That's taking a lot of time because there's a lot of technical things that are very complex but and it'll be it will be kind of an it will be an immersive uh, experience that's what i'll say right now i don't want to say too much about it because i i hope that by the end of this year all the music will be completely recorded and ready to mix and i think that the the music is i really think that 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 people who may have followed some of the things i have done or in that world are are really going to like it. I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot there, but I recognize it's not for everybody. First of all, it's a 57 minute piece of music. And though there's parts that, that have been delineated so that they're clear sections like movements that you could listen to that just as a movement. It's really meant to be like a, like a movie in a way, because it is a movie. Uh, it, it's uh, in terms of the story, but it's meant to be, listen to in a linear way and not just like, you know, jumping all around the place. So you could do that. And I made sections so that if people wanted to just go back to that section, they didn't have to go, was that at 23 minutes and 10 seconds? They could just go right to that, you know, Uh, but it's, it's, it's a continuous piece of music and it's really, it's the best thing that Vince and I have ever done. I mean, I guess I'll say that much. finished a track recently for for uh a terry brown the rush producer yeah uh, and he uh this is a piece uh that there's an artist named chris heron from a band called tiles and he got in touch with me and wanted me to play on this and they sent me the files and i just finished a whole bunch of I did everything from like, you know, drums and percussion. I played tablas. I played taiko drums. I played all this stuff on there. And, and they love, and I was, I was delighted because they just loved it. They just let me go. And, um, and I did just kind of what I wanted to do with it. And that's going to be coming out, uh, in a couple of months. That, that one is, um, 
that particular track's called Darkest Hour, and that's uh, uh, yeah, maybe Chris would be okay. They, uh, Terry just sent me a mix yesterday, and and uh, you know they might be okay with me saying, you know, here you want to play ninety seconds of it or something. I don't know. Yeah. And I got Martin Barr to 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 do some guitar on there too. Okay. So. That's great. But uh, anyway, and then, you know, I did another class. I've done two other classical albums in the last uh, year or two and uh, a couple of albums with Nad Sylvan that, you know, Steve Hackett's vocals. I worked on his previous two solo albums and different people. If I like the music and they send it to me, I'll I'll do it, you know, but that's the criteria. It's it has nothing. It has nothing to do with money nothing to do with that it's just if i like the if i like what i'm given and i feel that i can add something i i will i will do my best to to uh bring something to it and, and it, it almost goes back to what you were talking about like if, if if it's something that you that really excites you then it it doesn't matter what other people you know think it's like you're gonna find your people you're gonna find your listeners exactly but if, and you're putting out the vet the thing that that is exciting for you and it's like if it's your own you know your own performance your own composition and it's like hey i would listen to this then you're well, on to something <laughs> And that's precisely the way I feel because I've listened to it so many times and I go, you know, this, I'd listen to this. I mean, I'm glad to have, you know, been a co-creator of this, but, but, um, uh, I feel like that's gotta be, you have to answer yourself. And if you do that and you can answer honestly, you know, there's other people who are going to, are going to go, I, I love it too. So that, that kind of ties back to that very important, uh, sort of, uh, uh, edict that I've tried to 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 stay uh, connected to through my my life and career that 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 uh, you know you're you're never going to please everybody and there's that's a that's a hopeless goal if that's what you know you you're trying to do whether it's as a player or as a as a writer of 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 prose or of of music you know you um some people just have that ability to kind of, you know, connect like the Beatles did. It's just, they did what they did and people loved it, uh, you know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe the, there may have been some forethought about, you know, I mean, uh, putting things together, but, you know, I think they were just lucky enough to follow their muse. And if you're lucky enough to do that, then you have a chance to, uh, to actually leave something that you feel good to have your name on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you have to always remind yourself of why we exposed ourselves to this crazy business and why we did it in the first place. Is something motivated us to take this non-traditional route, and and it's it's something that motive you know to, yeah. to, to you, you, always keep in touch with that. You have to want to do this more than anything. I mean, I I had. I had like a plan B and C, but they were so distant that it might as well not have been there. But I think about it, I there's a few things I think I would have been very happy doing that I could have probably done reasonably well. But music kind of chose me, and I think th- th- there was no for me there was no option uh, to fail. Now I don't mean uh, you know success does not uh, should never equate in an artist's mind to, you know, money, notoriety and any of that. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I think that I, I, I remember feeling, you know, at the age of 
17 or 18 as I was turning 18. If I could just support myself playing music and just have my, you know, my, you know, little, you know, tiny little apartment, you know, on the West side and I can play every night. That's success. That's what the, the other things kind of fell in behind that. And I think that if I had chased maybe what ultimately kind of happened to me as a goal, I think it would have eluded me. I don't think it would have happened. I think I just, it's because I, I, I wanted to do this. I, and I, and and, and and again, this this may have been something you and I talked about before, but I not in this on this podcast. But I, I remember I had there was a turning point in in, in high school, and um, we had to do in the seventies these SAT things. You know, they do they do SAT and IQ tests and all this stuff. So anyway, I did them, and and I did you know fairly well on them. And the head of the upper school had my parents come in and he said you know Don is a very smart guy he could go ahead and be a doctor a lawyer a scientist or something he, you know why is he wasting his time with this music thing and they came back my father told me this and I was furious and I stormed into the, the head of the upper school's office the next morning and I said do you think it's easier to do I pay for my own music lessons I stay up till three or four in the morning I'm practicing on my pad and trying to read and learn all the rudiments and all this stuff. And I said, I'll bet you there's probably not too many people in my class who are going to go on to do whatever they're going to do that are doing that, you know, and, and, and I would sleep three hours. I'd get up, I'd go to school. And he said, well, the chances of you, that may be so you may have a passion for it, but the chances that you're going to be successful in that world are so remote. And I remember saying, well, somebody has to be successful, and, and, that was, and I, I remember that was sort of finished the conversation, and I just left. And I thought I was determined. I thought I felt I have something. I, I believed in myself, and even if he didn't, and the school didn't, I got no encouragement from school, and not a lot from you know my my father was encouraging, you know, to the extent that he could be. My mother just thought, this is, why is he doing this? You know, this could be in a much more stable occupation. Well, you know, to me, there wasn't, there wasn't another option. There was, but it was so distant. As I said, it's not worth talking about. And, and, and for, for me, that's what I think any musician, any artist that really thinks it doesn't matter how much money I make or how little, how many people know about me or how few it's like, you have to do this. This is what you have to do. And that's what I felt about it. It was like, I had to do that. And, and, and things, I was very lucky the way things worked out, but I think they worked out that way because I just followed that. And I just, and one thing led to another. And I just, I would, it wouldn't matter if I was playing for three people, you know, in a club in Greenwich Village at two in the morning or in front of 10,000 people. I played exactly the same way. I committed every note. When I would play, I was committed. And it didn't, and I got a lot of gigs by sometimes those three people in the audience. And one person was really pivotal to, to something that, that changed the whole, direction of where i would go and 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 i i think that that to me it's like when you sit down at your instrument you got to be serious business everything you play and and that would be the same in rehearsals and and so all i can say is is just 
if you're if you're committed and this is what you want to do more than anything, do it. And what's the worst that's going to happen is you go, okay, well maybe I have to, you know, get a gig at the post office to supplement this. You know, I played on the weekends, and you know, I I have friends who play avocationally have other kind of real normal jobs, and they love it. They're great at what they do on the and 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 it also makes what they do more undiluted because they're not. They're not having to. They're not hustling. They're not. You yeah, know. Mm-hmm. they're just the way they want to, and they're yeah. and they can you know make take care of their family in in a different in a way that that still allows them to be connected to the art of what they want to do without it getting corrupted. I feel like you and I have had similar experiences as far as the support or the questionable support that adults <laughs> gave us. Uh, you know, when we were younger and based on, I know my personality was, if you tell me that I can't do something, I'm going, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Right. Good for you. You know, and, and it makes me wonder if maybe that was part of what motivated you is, is some, you know, stuffy, uh, dude was telling you can't do it. You're like, all right, I'm going to show this guy, screw him. Well, you know, the thing is, I I knew I could, and mm-hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't so much even that I'm going to show him, but I thought in the course of my doing it, I felt like I was going to I was going to, you know, show him in the sense that that I I knew I had something, and he had no faith that that I had whatever that took, or and or that I could even make a living out of it, yeah. and so I I just felt that's. Uh, it's, you know that that kind of thing sometimes can be a powerful motivating factor, but really it's got to come beyond that from the love of what you want to do because of this. Right, you're right, and 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 don't we're glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Do I, I, I still am? I feel like I've just. I feel like every every almost every day I come in here and I feel like. I'm finally getting the hang of this music thing. (laughs) (laughs) But I know how you feel. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm slowly building my studio space up that, and I'm I you know I'm trying to find the right lighting because it's like I want to spend hours and hours in here, and 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 just and immerse myself in and whether it's you know doing percussion overdubs or a drum track but 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 to also be able to sit down with an idea compositionally and create so it's just it's been an inspiration man to to talk to you and to hear about just the excitement in your voice to this very day and and even this past week going and digging deeper into uh, your history and what you've been doing and it's like to think that it's just you're you're just you seem like you still have that same excitement to to create and to be involved in music and it's it's very inspirational man you know in in, in some ways i feel that it, more than ever i, I feel wow. that yeah. you know i'm just uh you know i i I've, there's some people i know who are feeling like they just kind of want to wind things up I feel like, oh man, I've got so much to do and I want, I, you know, I'm not going to get it all done. I don't think anybody gets to the grave and, you know, wipes their brow and goes, got it all done. No, I, I, you know, I think it's very few, few people, particularly artists, whoever kind of feel that way, you know, but I, I feel like I am more excited and motivated by, and, and, and also the fact that I have this time now 
partly pandemic related, partly just, you know, being off the road and, and really saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is the next chapter of my life. And I'm really enjoying it. That's and amazing. I just feel like I'm so delighted. I feel very fortunate, very blessed to have things have kind of turned out the way they, they have. But I think everybody, everybody can author that in their own life. You know, everybody authors their own happiness or unhappiness, and it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, money, you know, outward success, you know, fame. It has nothing to do with that. Yeah. You know, yeah. we make those choices every day. So, you know, I, I know some people who, you know, they they have other jobs and, you know, when they go and play, they're very joyful. They're very happy. And, you know, that's 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 kind of if music isn't that if music is not bringing you joy and and uh, the people listening to it. Uh, some joy, then it's maybe better to think about <laughs> something else. Oh, I know. If if I lost the yeah, that if any, I I totally get it. It it just it has brought me so much joy. It has brought it, it has, uh, and hopefully that has transcended into being uh, you know a better father, a better husband, a better friend by just by doing something I love and just just making that part of my life. So yes, yeah. because you weren't and you were doing something you really didn't like that would be reflected in your family life mm -hmm. and everybody you dealt with but you know if you if you're if you're finding joy in what you are doing your family will be the lucky recipients of that and everybody that you know will and yeah. and that's you know i mean it's everybody has this has not been a joyful time for humanity but i hope that there will be some some really good things and some wonderful art that is going to come out of it. And I suspect there will be. Yeah. Well, this, this time speaking to you, man, uh, you know, a big thanks to drummer Jack White for connecting. Us. Oh, um, yes. he's, a <laughs> guy. he's a dear friend. I feel like I'm, I'm the benefactor of, of so many of these, you know, I, I, I host half of them. I produce them. I put them out, but I'm like, gosh, I just, I'm the, I'm, cause I'm a consummate student, man. I just I grow so much from it. I appreciate oh, me it. Me too. Yeah. Oh, me too. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. That's, that's a good, stay there. Stay there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, man, I'm going to let you go. Um, okay, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I, I know that was long, and I hope the no. editing is too rough. But anyway, um, yeah. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I just want to say have a great night, and, and, and thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's late for you. Yeah, it's after midnight. So get some rest. Enjoy your family and, uh, and your life, and, and I'll be in touch with you very soon. Sounds great, Joan. All right, great. man. All the best to you, Matthew. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. So there you have it, part two and the final installment of my interview with Doan Perry. Again, I just so enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I hope to have an opportunity to keep in touch with Doan and speak to him some more. He was so generous with his time and so generous with contributing just lots of information and his music and what's going on with him now. So I hope you all stuck with us and enjoyed both part one and part two of my conversation with Doan Perry. Stay tuned next week for Zach's interview with Ross Peterson, a New York drummer with a New York City resume. We had him booked for this week, but there was a scheduling conflict because, as you know, 
Many of our guests are busy working musicians, and uh, this was a situation that worked out just great. We had Doan's Part 2 in the hopper, ready to go, so we were able to cover this week with this great interview with Doan, but stay tuned next week for Zach's interview with Ross Peterson. And just one more reminder about our friend Keith Dudek, part of the drumming community, and he's been in the hospital for over a month. In our show notes on the website, you will see a link to a GoFundMe page. We're uh, wishing him all the best, but it's been a tough road, and his medical expenses are going to be huge. So if uh, you are at all interested in helping this fine musician and fine person out, Keith Dudek, GoFundMe page, you can find the link in the show notes. But for now, everyone, continue to stay safe, and thanks so much for listening, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.